0: Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be gathered together here. Thank you for the awesome opportunity to open your word. And we ask, Lord, that you will fulfill your promise by sending your Holy Spirit and speaking to our hearts and minds. For this we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, for many people, when they think about hell, there's this mental uh, image that, um, that they get. And maybe it's something like this, you know, a place of fire and a place where the devil is in charge. Perhaps he has that pitchfork in his hands and and the horns on his head, and uh, he's in charge, and people are there suffering and burning forever and ever, and he is making sure that they are staying there so that they can be uh, punished throughout eternity this is actually a picture that has been given to us by the church of the dark ages if you go back to the dark ages and and you look at some of the imagery that came up uh, uh, in cathedrals and churches at that time many times this imagery was leaning towards this kind of picture uh, as a matter of fact i've visited a number of uh, uh cathedrals in europe and in some of these cathedrals, when you walk in, there will be these amazing paintings. And uh, you'll have a painting on one side of heaven, and you'll have the other side, a painting of hell. And so on the one side, the, the painting of heaven, you'll have angels, uh, oftentimes, you know, little baby angels. And they're on those clouds, and there will be people that are playing the harps. And then on the other side, you will have hell, where people are being tormented and tortured, and they're, and they're, 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 they're just pain. Uh, pain in the fires of hell and, and the question we want to ask tonight is this merely art that has informed us or is this something that we also find in scripture and uh, in order to do so we're going to have to go to scripture but we're going to do a little review of last night will kind of which will set the the stage and uh, help us to move into this subject We've talked earlier in this seminar about what the church went through uh, as it got started. You remember the church got started, and it started out as a movement that was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The disciples were sent out by Jesus. They went forth proclaiming the gospel. Churches were uh, started and planted, and, and the gospel was actually spreading like wildfire. And many people were coming to the faith. But then as you get a couple of centuries into the christian movement things started to change and we talked about this earlier particularly under the rulership of constantine which was the first christian emperor and now christianity became the state religion but as christianity became the state religion a lot of the pagan traditions came into christianity and uh, there was this quote that i shared with you earlier that uh, phrased it in this way Um, we have now baptized uh, baptized Paganism. So paganistic rites and rituals were now being baptized into the church and they were called Christian. And this is the period that we can refer to as the Deformation or the Dark Ages. And this necessitated a reformation, a new awakening, and a return to sola scriptura, a return to the Bible alone. Well, William Gladstone, I shared this quote with you last night, he said the following, he made the following observation. He said, the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the human soul crept into the back door of the church. And I believe this statement to be true, that this this whole idea that the soul is immortal is actually not a biblical teaching. It's not it's not rooted in Hebrew thinking it is actually taken from Greek philosophy and not only Greek philosophy You can actually go way uh, further back than Greek philosophy. You'll find it in ancient civilizations The idea that we are not mortal, but we're immortal. There's something in us that will continue to live you find it um, You find it in Egypt you find it in Babylon you find it in Medo Persia You find it in the as I mentioned the Hellenistic thinking and later you find it in the Roman Empire in all these ancient civilizations, there was this idea that, that we are not mortal. We're actually immortal. There's, there's something that we bring into the afterlife. And this whole idea, which is really a pagan doctrine, crept into the back door of the church. Eventually, Christianity started to embrace this way of thinking. And uh, yesterday, we went on a journey in Scripture, and we actually looked at what the Bible teaches about what happens when a person dies and we found out that the bible is very clear that our hope is not in our immortality because we are not immortal we are mortal beings but our hope is in the resurrection our hope is in the resurrection And we actually asked this question uh is the soul immortal or is there a resurrection because it's not both right it can't be both the soul if the soul is immortal you don't need a resurrection But if if we do need a resurrection, that means that the soul is mortal. And we looked at a text that told us very clearly uh, in the New Testament in 1 Timothy uh, that God alone has immortality. So God alone has immortality. We are mortal beings, but we receive the gift of immortality when he returns and when that resurrection takes place, which actually the resurrection coincides with the second coming of Jesus Christ and um i shared with you this quote also from john stott yesterday which was was a foremost anglican theologian interesting he was really thinking out of the box because the anglican church um, as a tradition does not actually uh, uh, believe um, uh, in, in what he is mentioning here they actually teach that when you die you go straight to heaven or hell but john Stott, thinking out of the box studying the scriptures he came to the following conclusion he said it cannot i think be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal for the immortality and therefore the indestructibility of the soul is a greek not a biblical concept and that's exactly what we're trying to um uh, uh what we're trying to present uh here to look at what is biblical and what is actually a, a foreign uh concept that has crept in And I believe that uh, John Stott is right uh, on target when he says that this whole idea of the immortality of the soul is a Greek concept and it has come into the back door of the church. Well, we also looked at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which describes the hope of the resurrection, and when it describes the hope of the resurrection, it tells us what will take place at the resurrection, what will take place when Jesus comes again, because it is at the coming of Jesus that we are given as a gift immortality. Take notice, we'll read it again. We read it already yesterday, but just to refresh our minds, uh, let's read it again. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep. And we talked about this yesterday as well, that in the Bible, more than 80 times in the Bible, sleep is used to describe death. And it's really, really beautiful because sleep is not eternal. You go to sleep, but then you wake up. And this is exactly what, what the Bible seeks to communicate. When you die, it's not an eternal death, but you're gonna wake up one day. There's gonna be a resurrection. If you put your hope in Jesus, then you will be raised to life. And so he says, we shall not all, we shall not all sleep, But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet he refers to the last trumpet that's the coming of jesus for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this what does it say mortal must put on what Immortality. So do we have immortality right now? No, we are mortal, but we put on immortality when, when the last trumpet sounds, when Jesus returns, when the resurrection takes place. He goes on to say when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory And this is the whole hope that we live with as Christians because as Christians we know that death is not does not have the final say death does not have the final say because Jesus conquered death when he rose from the grave Amen. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He paid the price of sin, which is death. He died, but then he rose again. And our hope rests in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because he rose, we can rise one day. Amen. So our hope, again, is not in and of ourselves that we possess some immortal soul that is going to be released when we die. No, our, our, our hope is not in us. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Jesus and His death and his resurrection in our place now I kind of touched on this yesterday but I want to get deeper into this tonight and that is that the Church of the Dark Ages the Church of Rome has actually taken advantage of this whole idea of the immortality of the soul the teaching of the immortality of soul of the soul was very convenient for the church during the Dark Ages As a matter of fact the Church of Rome invented a doctrine that you do not find in Scripture you can read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation and you will not find this doctrine in Scripture but it's the doctrine of purgatory now purgatory what's purgatory purgatory is the kind of in-between stage between heaven and earth and so if a person dies and and the outcome uh, is, is not yet determined whether they're gonna be saved or whether they're gonna be lost they end up in this place called Purgatory the church invented it the Church of Rome invented it But it, when you're in purgatory and you're suffering in purgatory There is a way to get out according to the Church of Rome and the Church of Rome would teach that if you would pay money to the church Then the priest could say some magical word some magical prayer and the soul of your of that loved one that had passed away will now go from purgatory into heaven and the church was making a lot of money this way. As a matter of fact, they made so much money this way that they were able to build what is now called St. Peter's Basilica right there at the Vatican. And uh, there was a man by the name of Tetzel that traveled through Europe at that time and uh, and he said the following as soon as the gold in the casket rings the rescued soul to heaven springs he would actually have uh, demonstrations of uh, he would he would preach on this subject of purgatory and he would do it in a very living way and he would illustrate what the flames of fire um, and how they would uh, uh, you know torture this soul but but just if you would give That money and and the prayer would be spoken then that soul that is that is being tortured in the flames of fire would then be released to heaven and of course many people they bought into this because one of the reasons why they bought into this is because the Bible was not accessible to the common person as a matter of fact, in those days, the Bible had not been spread or translated, and it was, only, it was only really accessible to the clergy. And guess what? The clergy would often teach in the Latin language, which was not a wide-spoken language for the common person in those days. And so if you would go to a service, first of all, you didn't have a Bible. Secondly, often the service would be in a language that you didn't understand. And so what do you do? Well, you just go by whatever the priest says. And so the priests could say what they wanted, and they did that, and they would control the crowds. They would control the people. And the people were living in fear, in fear of this whole idea that God would burn them throughout eternity if they would not give their money to Rome, if they would not uh, partake in the Mass, if they would not support the church in the way that they were required to support it. It is not for nothing that these, these years and these ages are called the dark ages because it was dark because the bible says very clearly that this is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path can you say amen and so here we have the light but the light was not yet shining forth upon this continent of europe as a matter of fact it's very interesting because it was in the days that tatzel traveled around in europe and was proclaiming these things that there was a monk by the name of martin luther and he was a german and in germany he was studying the the theology of the roman catholic church and he was living in fear in fear of god and yet he wanted with all his heart to serve god his heart was in the right place he loved god he wanted to follow god but he lived in continual fear because of the picture of god that had been set before him by the current church at that time But as Martin Luther developed in his spiritual walk and he started himself to examine the scriptures, he started to see a very different picture of God than the picture that had been presented to him by the church. And so what started to take place gradually, slowly, is that there are here individuals here and there, um, among others, uh, Martin Luther, that are now coming out of this dark tunnel and are actually coming back into the light of God's word. And this is called the Reformation. The Reformation, they sought to, to bring a reform to the current condition that they found themselves in. And that's why Martin Luther, as he started studying the scriptures, he started seeing a different picture of God, a different picture of the gospel, and he started proclaiming that in Europe and uh, and this caused others to to pick up their bibles and to start studying it and proclaiming it to the people and there was this ground grassroots movement of people that were coming back to the bible but we need to understand one thing in all of this history is that when you have been in darkness for centuries then the light of god's word is not just going to break upon you in all its fullness at once And so there is a gradual moving into darkness, as we see throughout the early centuries of Christianity. But there's also a gradual coming out of darkness, as we see from the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. It was a journey. And I believe, I'm fully convinced that we're still on that journey today. We're living in 2019, but there are a lot of, of, of denominations and churches and, and, a, and, and, a, and a great uh, amount of Christians that, that, that and, and, and I, I count myself in this group that continually need to study the scriptures to come out of the darkness that the church was in during the Dark Ages. I believe we're on that journey. And I believe we're all on that journey. And that's why we need to come to the scriptures in order to find out what it actually teaches about these matters. Well, let's look a little bit closer then at this subject of hell fire first of all, I always like to look at the definitions in the Bible, because this helps uh, a great deal. Because, you know, we, we always need to remind ourselves that when the Bible was written, it wasn't written in the English language. The Old Testament of the Scriptures was written in the Hebrew language, and the New Testament of the Scriptures was written in the Greek language, and the Hebrew words somehow, uh, sometimes have multiple uh, meanings. And the same with Greek. the Greek words, they can have multiple meanings. And so when the book was translated, when the Bible was translated, there were translators that were choosing certain words that they thought fit at that time. Well, when the Bible was, was, was came about, or when the canon was, was formed and, and later translated to many languages, remember that this was happening at a time where they were still coming out of this darkness, right? And so if they're if they're in their understanding um fire was a place of eternal torment well then they're going to actually imply those words into the scriptures and so we need to go back to the original language and say okay what does hell actually mean because for us i can say okay envision get a picture in your mind when i say the following word and then i say the word hell and you all have a mental picture and for many of us the mental picture that we have with the word hell is kind of a little bit like that picture I showed, to you, I showed to you in the beginning. A place of burning where the devil is in charge and where people are suffering throughout eternity. But let's look at the evidence of scripture. Now, in the Old Testament, the word hell is translated 31 times from the Hebrew word sheol. Okay, so whenever the word Sheol appears, at least 31 times in the Old Testament, um, what, what, what the translators have done is they've said, okay, they, they've, they've called this hell. But, but we have a mental picture of hell. That's the burning place, right, where, where people are burning throughout eternity. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, what does the word Sheol mean? That has been translated as the word hell 31 times in the Old Testament. Well, the word Sheol simply means grave or place of the departed okay so already 31 times in the old testament the word hell has actually a quite a different meaning than what many people have associated it with it means sheol place of the departed grave simply that is the meaning of the word sheol what about the new testament in the new testament in the new testament there are two greek words that are translated as hell the first is the word Hades, which basically has the same meaning as the word Sheol in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and which is also place of the departed one or the grave. And then you have the second word that is used, um, and that is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is um, probably the original uh, Greek word that comes closest to kind of our imagery of fire and burning and destruction. Okay, So there is that word Gehenna that appears a number of times. And so what I want to do is I want to go a little bit closer and see how this word Gehenna is used or in which setting uh, it is used in Scripture, okay? Well, Gehenna was actually a place, which is interesting. Just outside of Jerusalem, there was a place called Gehenna. Now, what was Gehenna? Gehenna was basically what we would call today a... Um, uh, I don't know what you call it in the English language, like a dump, a trash place, right, where you throw your garbage. And uh, basically, Gehenna was the place where they would throw their garbage of those that were living in Jerusalem. And guess what? Because of all the garbage that accumulated there, because of the many people living in the city of Jerusalem, they would burn that garbage to get rid of it. But because there was always coming new garbage from the city, they would be throwing that garbage there. And because it was always there was always new garbage to burn, there would be this eternal fire eternal fire, eternal in the sense that as long as there's something to burn, it's going to burn. Okay, so that's Gehenna, Gehenna. And Jesus refers a number of times to Gehenna in the New Testament. As he's talking about the final destruction of the wicked, he's talking about Gehenna. Now, when does this actually happen, this final destruction of the wicked? And, 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 and what does the Bible actually teach about the duration of this destruction? And actually, I want to look at three basic questions regarding hell. Okay. These are the three questions that I want to ask tonight. When is hell? Where is hell? And I guess the last question is probably the most important when we think about the whole idea of God's character. And that is how long is hell? Because the traditional view, okay, Let, let's, let's first just approach this from the traditional view that is out there in Christianity, the mainstream idea about hell. When is it? Well, it's already now, according to many. It's already now. People that have died are already in hell. That's what many Christians believe. So where is it? Well, there's maybe different opinions about that. Maybe some say in the center of the earth or, or some other place. Uh, there's, there's kind of a little bit of difference maybe on that point. How long? Well, most traditionally will agree eternally. That means that if you end up there, someone that has already died and that didn't profess faith in Christ and that was living in a way that they should not live, they are then condemned to the flames of hell. They are there right now. How long are they going to be there? Forever. Like, there's no escape. There is a continual suffering. Actually, I wonder if sometimes, I wonder if ever we've really just sat down and even used like 10 minutes or 15 minutes to contemplate what this doctrine is actually teaching. Have you ever burnt yourself? Have you ever burnt your finger? Have you ever burnt your hand? Does it hurt? Oh yes, it hurts. Can you imagine what actually Christianity at large is teaching that a person that may not have even had the opportunity to know Christ, Uh, has then uh, not accepted christ ends up in a place of eternal torment and there is no escape he's not burning there for 10 minutes not for 15 minutes but for year after year after year century after century after century millennia after millennia thousands of years millions of years and there's no escape and they are continually burning no wonder there are thousands and millions of atheists in our world today what type of god is that what type of character are you actually portraying when you're saying that god burns people in hell forever and ever how many of your parents here tonight your parents okay i have two boys a five year old and a two year old you know i believe that it's important and it is a task that god has given me to raise up these children well you know according to my bible when i read my bible we are all children of god You know, he's our heavenly father over and over again more than 200 times in scripture. He is called our father We have a parental relationship with our heavenly father now I have a relationship with my son and this is only a picture and a type of the relationship that I have with God But I cannot imagine that even if my son wouldn't want to know me anymore even though he would reject me and turn away from me that I would grab him and punish him forever it's absurd it's not, there's nothing in my mind that can even grasp that and this though and 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 that is to be a picture of what god would do to us i mean uh, and, and so let's look at this subject once again and let's look at it from a biblical perspective of what the bible actually teaches so let's start with the question when when is this final destruction Because it is true that the Bible does teach that there will be a final destruction of those that utterly reject Christ and that walk in their own path and that are filled of wickedness and decide to reject Christ. And he is not going to force them into heaven. We don't serve a God that is gonna force us to be saved. So in other words, God says, okay, I respect your choice. I respect that you wanna be separated from me, but the reality of the matter is that there is no life outside of Christ. There is no life outside of the God, the creator. So by separating yourself from God, you are separating yourself from the source of all life. And therefore, there is a final destruction of the wicked in that sense. Now when is that final destruction now according to the bible when you look at the final chapters of the book of revelation There is an a a big picture that is painted there for us regarding these final events and um Actually, on a future night um, in this seminar, we're going to go in more detail. So I'm just going to give you kind of the bird's perspective right now. And if you say, oh, I have a couple of questions about that or that or that, we'll come back and we'll study this more in depth on a future night. But I want you to take notice that in the end of the book of Revelation, there are four chapters, 19, 20, 21, and 22, that give us kind of a picture of how things are going to end. Okay. So in Revelation chapter 19, we have a picture of the second coming of Jesus. We've talked about this great hope that we have. Jesus came to this earth the first time. He died in our place. He rose from the grave and one of the last things he said to his disciples is I am coming again He said let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions If I if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also that's John 14 verse 1 to 3 So Jesus gives us the assurance I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again And I'm going to receive you to the place that I have prepared And so as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, what can we expect? Exactly that Christ is going to come again. And so in Revelation chapter 19, we have the picture of the second coming of Christ. He comes and takes the the redeemed home. The resurrection takes place. They're taken to heaven to the place that he has prepared for them. And then as you move into the 20th chapter of Revelation, we have this prophecy called the Millennium Prophecy. And millennium comes from the you know from the latin mila thousand annium years a thousand years so the thousand year prophecy and again we're going to talk more about this prophecy in a future night i'm just giving you here the big picture but in revelation chapter 20 it talks about these thousand years that the the saved are going to be together with jesus in heaven in the place that he has prepared for them but then as you continue to read in revelation chapter 20 it talks about what happens after the thousand years after those thousand years are finished, the new Jerusalem, so not the Jerusalem that was here on earth, but the new Jerusalem in heaven where the saints are with Christ as they are, as they are with him for those thousand years. Then that great city and all the saved will come down to this earth. And the new jerusalem will settle once again on will settle on this earth and all the saved will be gathered there together because ultimately our home my friends is not going to be in heaven oh it will be for for a thousand years but our ultimate home throughout the eternal ages is actually going to be this earth This earth is going to be recreated in the end. And you read about the recreation of the earth in chapter 21 and 22. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth. This very center of rebellion, this earth that has been the center of rebellion, is going to be the center of God's kingdom in the very end. It's fascinating. He will recreate this earth. But before the recreation of this earth, which are the final two chapters in the Bible, we have what is known as the Gog and Magog battle. The Gog and Magog battle. This is actually imagery that is taken from the Old Testament and is kind of used to describe the final battle here. Gog and Magog were actually enemies of Israel and now it's used here to portray the enemies of God's people in the end of time. And so what happens is when, when, when the, the city comes down and it's on this earth, then you read about in Revelation chapter 20, the second part of the chapter, how there will be what is called a second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the Righteous before the thousand years, but now there's a second resurrection of all those that have rejected the invitation of Christ, those that have walked in their wicked ways, those that have refused to be saved, that have chosen a different path. And Jesus was very plain on this. He taught, on, and, and we'll look more in, in, in more detail at this later, but, but even in John chapter 5, Jesus talks about there being two resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And so here is the resurrection of the unjust. And as they are raised, now comes the moment where they, where they, where they are, are, are raised to life, and they see the city of God and all the saved that are redeemed in that city, and they choose to attack that city under the command of Satan himself, the devil himself. And then, then is the moment... That we can refer to as hell that is the moment of final destruction upon the wicked now i want you to take notice of the description of this destruction in revelation chapter 20 and verse 9 it says and they came up on the broad plain of the earth surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and listen and fire came down from heaven and did what what does it say and devoured them. Can you say that a little louder? And devoured them. Now, that's an important phrase because if you're devoured, is there anything left? No. So, so this is the final destruction. And, and, and let me point out one more thing here, which is so incredible. When God destroys the wicked, what he's actually destroying is nothing else but sin but the very reason that 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 individuals have held on to sin they will be destroyed with that sin because what this is all about my friends is that the new earth in the new earth there's going to be no more sin can you say amen there's going to be no more sin in the new earth so sin has to be eradicated if, if you get nothing out nothing more out of this presentation tonight i want you to listen very carefully to the next sentence hell is all about the destruction of sin Okay. Hell is designed to eradicate sin from this planet. That's what it's for. It's not as a purpose of punishing. It's as the purpose of eradication of sin. Okay. And this happens in this final battle called Gog and Magog after these thousand years. So all those that have held on to sin sadly they are now devoured they are destroyed with sin and they are no more there is no place of continual suffering throughout eternal ages according to the scriptures as a matter of fact right after that battle is described in revelation chapter 20 take notice what it says as we get into chapter 21 and the new earth is described the bible says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain, because the first things are passed away. Now think about this, if you would be in heaven, and then you would be on that new earth that God creates, and he creates this beautiful new earth, and just imagine for a moment that this traditional view is true, that there's some corner in the universe where the devil is still in charge, and there's some corner in this universe where people are still burning and suffering. How would you feel about heaven? How would you feel about heaven if you knew that there were people that were continually being tormented by flames throughout eternity? The question is, would heaven really be heaven? And think about it okay let me even press this a little bit stronger imagine if it's one of your children that chose a different path how would you feel about that how would you feel about that my friends this traditional view has no basis in Scripture and more importantly it distorts the character of God it distorts the character of God God is a God of justice and mercy can you say amen and God will destroy sin in the end because He is a God of justice. But the Bible also says He will wipe away every tear. And there will be no place of eternal torment because all things will become new. And the Bible says there will be no longer mourning, no longer crying, no longer pain. And guess what? Sin will be eradicated. If the traditional view is true, then sin will never, never disappear from this universe. If the traditional view is true, that there is a place where there is a hell, and and, and sinners are there, and they continue to sin, and the devil is there, then the devil, we will never get rid of him, and we will never get rid of sin. But my friends, I'm so happy that that's not the biblical story. Because the biblical story is that the devil will have his day when he will be gone, and sin will be eradicated, and therefore, we can have a new heaven and a new earth. What do you say? Oh, i'm very passionate about this subject because it's so important because it portrays the very character of god and so we've answered the question when is hell the final destruction is after those thousand years um it is it is that gog and magog battle it's the final battle that the bible describes the last two chapters of the Bible, they, they, they portray a very similar picture to the first two chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's a perfect God. There's perfect, there's perfect uh, mankind is perfect. There's no sin, no sorrow, no suffering. There's a perfect relationship between God and man. And then in chapter 3 of the Bible, the conflict begins. They choose to eat of that fruit that was forbidden. And the conflict emerges and it begins. And the conflict lasts all the way to Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, we have the final conflict between good and evil described there in the Gog and Magog battle. This is really what hell is about. It's a destruction of sin, an eradication of sin. And then when you go to the two last chapters in the Bible, again, a perfect world, a perfect God, a perfect relationship, and no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. And that's, my friends, the hope that we have as Christians. And so we've talked about when hell will be. It will be after those thousand years in the Gog and Magog battle where it will be on this earth. This fire will come down and devour the the sin and sinners. And how long is the next question? This is a very important question because it reveals a lot about the character of God. The traditional view is that people are burning already now, those that have rejected Christ, and that they will burn throughout eternity, which is very illogic if you think about it. Because someone that merely did not really have the opportunity to get to know Jesus uh, and and lived before Hitler is burning throughout eternity. And Hitler that came along centuries later and mass murdered millions of people through his influence is burning, well, in in, in comparatively less long. It makes no sense. There's not even any type of justice in this traditional picture of hell. And so what, what will actually happen? Well, the Bible tells us, listen to the following, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildo- evildoer will be, ch- will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall." You will tread down the wicked, listen to this, for they will be like what? What's the word there? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi the prophet, the last prophet in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament, he is describing what that day of judgment will be like, what that day of hell will be like. And my friends, it is a day, it's not a century, it's not a millennial, it's not millions of years, it's not even a month, It's, it's, it's a day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, what takes place? They will be reduced to ashes. Let me let me ask you something. Do ashes burn? No, they're finished with burning, right? The ashes is the burning has already happened. This is what is left. If I if if I ask you the question, how long does a match burn? Well, you light the match and you wait, and when it's finished burning, there's nothing more to burn, right? It doesn't continue to burn unless now listen very carefully. Unless unless. You believe that the match has some kind of magical ability to continue to burn throughout eternity now this is where our two subjects connect because if you believe that the soul is immortal if you put something immortal into flames how long is it going to burn forever forever if this clicker if this clicker is a soul that is immortal and this round table here is hellfire and we believe that the soul is immortal you put an immortal soul in fire, how long is it going to be there? Forever. You see, the fallacy of the whole idea of eternal hell is built on the fallacy of the Greek concept of an eternal soul, which the Bible does not teach. And so if the Bible does not teach an eternal soul, then neither does it it teach an eternal hell. Are you with me? Now look at this, Jude chapter 7, verse 7. Jude just has one chapter. It's the book right before the book of Revelation and listen to what it says in verse 7 of the book of Jude It says Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember those cities? You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament? They were destroyed by fire. Remember fire came down from heaven destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah They were wicked cities. There was corruption in the city. There was oppression in the city. There was evil in that city There was suffering in that city people were being manipulated and suffered and so God says it's enough. It's enough And so he rains down fire and he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah listen to what the Bible says about Sodom and Gomorrah and the comparison of what happened there and what will happen in the end of time it says the following Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up it's like it's like they've just given themselves fully to wickedness they've given themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion they serve as a what what does it say as an example of those who suffered the punishment of what eternal fire now now this is where people get confused because people get confused when they read the phrase eternal fire and i understand that i mean i understand that this can at times seem a little bit difficult because the bible does say eternal so how do we then understand the phrase eternal Well, simply, when the Bible talks about eternal fire, he's talking about eternal consequences. The consequences of this punishment upon Sodom and Gomorrah are eternal. There's no turning back. But let me ask you a very practical question tonight. Sodom and Gomorrah, are they burning today? Can you go somewhere and see Sodom and Gomorrah burn? no no it's finished right so the burning is not eternal but the punishment is eternal in other words you can say it like this the punishment is eternal but the punishing is not eternal are you with me and so this is very interesting Jude tells us Sodom and Gomorrah are an example for those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire so when that fire falls in the end in order to eradicate sin from this planet it is right like sodom and gomorrah it is a punishment that will last forever because the consequences will be forever but the actual punishing and the actual burning is by no means eternal according to the scriptures now let's take another verse second peter chapter 2 and verse 6. listen to what the bible says if he condemned the cities of sodom and gomorrah again refer to these two cities If he condemned the cities of sodom and gomorrah by burning them to what to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly so we can look in sodom and gomorrah and that is the exact example the exact example of what is going to happen in the end of time how did it happen fire came down from heaven and reduced the city to ashes in a day and so in the end of time, when God's uh, people are gathered in that city and the wicked surround that city in order to s- destroy it, fire will come down from heaven, just like in Sodom, in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will reduce them to ashes, sin will be eradicated, the ungodly will be no more. And so it's very clear what the, teach- what the scriptures teach. This whole traditional idea of eternal hell is a concocted doctrine which has its roots in paganism and which has been passed down to us by the Roman Catholic Church as a legacy to Protestantism. And sadly, Protestant denominations have bought right into this. And even though there was a great reformation, there were things that were being reformed, but sadly there were other things that were not being reformed. And that's why I believe strongly that we are still living in a time which we should be willing to continue this reformation, to continue to come back to the scriptures. Because in the end of time, my friends, people need to see a clear picture of what God is like. Amen? God's character needs to be put on display. And God's character will not be put on display in its truthful way if we hold on to the traditional view of hell as an eternal torment that is already taking place now. Everlasting fire is an everlasting punishment, and an everlasting punishment is a punishment which has an effect lasting forever. The Bible talks about an eternal punishment, but not an eternal punishing, and that distinction is so important. Well, let's look at another verse to illustrate this Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27 now Jeremiah lived in a time where um, Apostasy was rampant within Israel and he was a prophet of warning. He was seeking to bring the people back to God Uh, God God's people had gone astray in so many different ways they they no longer regarded the Sabbath as holy and they were just living in uh, idolatry and um, And Jeremiah was predicting that they would be overthrown by the kingdom of Babylon. And he even predicted that they would be taken to Babylon. And one of the things that he mentions as he's predicting the fall of uh, of Jerusalem and such is, is the following in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27. He says, but if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. And so God is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah and saying, you know, you don't regard my holy day anymore. And it was more than that, they were not just not regarding the holy day, they were not regarding God in that sense. They were not worshiping God. They were just doing all their own business and they had no regard for all the blessings that God had bestowed upon them. And so Jeremiah says, if this continues, then what's gonna happen is and God says through Jeremiah, I'm gonna kindle a fire. And, and and then he uses this 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 depiction that the gates of jerusalem will burn and and this expression in the end it says and not be quenched now let me ask you a very practical question are the gates of jerusalem burning today in 2019 no, they're not burning today. So what is the imagery that God is seeking to convey through his prophet? The imagery is very simply the following, that the consequences of their doings, there's going to be a consequence of their actions. And the consequence of their actions is is that God is going to have to withdraw his protection from them, right? There's going to be a fire in their gates. In other words, it's, it's almost like if a gate burns up, well, then there's, there's free access to the city. There's no longer protection. And so what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah is, if you continue this, this this way, then I'm going to withdraw my protection. And you, as a little nation that have been protected for all these years, my protection is no longer going to be there. And then bigger nations than you are going to conquer you. And that's exactly what happened. And so the imagery uh, is an eternal burning um, palace or an eternal burning gate but that's not something that was literally happening but it's an imagery of what god was going to do if the nation continued on this downward spiral are you with me so far yeah okay now i'm going to share with you again uh the quote from john stott but I, before i've kind of shared you part of the quote which which talked mainly about the um Uh, the immortal soul versus the mortal soul but i want to take a little bit um, a bigger uh, passage here of what he actually writes and where he also addresses this idea of of hell and how this ties in so here john stop he says the following as a committed evangelical my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me but what does god's word say And in order to understand this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh and to open our minds, not just our hearts, to the possibility that Scripture points in the direction, listen to this, of annihilation, and that the doctrine of eternal conscious torture has to yield to the supreme authority of Scripture. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore the indestructibility of the souls is a Greek, not a biblical concept. So what he's really getting at here is we need to examine the scriptures. And if the scriptures are pointing in the direction of annihilation, then that's where we should go because the scriptures are clear. The scriptures are clear. And the whole idea of an eternal burning fire is really connected to the whole idea of an immortal soul. And, and, and why is this so important for us? Because, again, it portrays the picture of God. What kind of picture do we want to give to the world of God? Do you want to give a, a, a picture of a, of a just God that will eradicate sin, and but that wants all of us to be saved and that is doing everything in His power to save? Or are we going to give a picture of a God that if you don't receive Him, then He's going to punish you throughout the eternal Ceaseless ages there going to be no end to it. It's going to be an eternal suffering. Well, that's a very, very different picture. John three sixteen is probably the most well known verse in the Bible. And do you know that John three sixteen is actually a verse that also speaks into this subject that we're studying tonight? In John chapter three sixteen, Jesus says the following, um, or, or John writes the following about Jesus. He says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." That Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life now now Let's just like like kind of focus in on that verse for a moment. Okay, God so loved the world That's good news. I mean, there's good. It's good news that there is a God actually actually let me let me just back up for a moment Let me ask you the question. Is it good news that there's a God? Yeah, how many say by raising of hand? It's good news that there is a God Okay, now now there was a little bit of a trick question and you went right for it. So thank you for that Now it is you're you're totally right Let me say that it's right that there's a good God because I know what you are thinking I know what you're thinking when I say is there a good God then you're thinking of a of the biblical beautiful picture of God that We have in Scripture and therefore you say it's good news But let me say this it's not necessarily good news that there's a God Because what if that God was a God that would torture someone in hell forever and ever is it then good news that there's a God really? What if that God uh, predetermines who is going to be saved and who's going to be lost without their choice that is involved? What if that God, before you were born, even predetermined if you're going to be saved or going to be lost? Is that good news if you were predetermined to not be saved and if there's an eternal hellfire that lasts forever and ever? Is it good news that there's a God? No, it's not good news. And so according to many of the doctrines that Christianity teaches today, it's not good news that there's a God okay but according to the biblical picture of god as a god of love as a god that gives us a choice as a god that gives us a free will as a god that woos us to himself through the death of his son for a god that wants to do away with sin and wants to save us to the uttermost a god that intercedes for us daily is it good news that there's such a god yes amen so is it, is it good news that there's a god it depends right it depends that's the right answer actually it depends what that God is like but I'm so happy that according to the biblical picture that I have of God it's good news that there's a God for God so loved the world he loves the world my friends he loves everyone in the world God does not want anyone to go to hell God does not want anyone to be destroyed in that final destruction on that day uh, after those thousand years. God doesn't want that for anyone. God so loved the world. And what, what does he do? How does he demonstrate that love? How does he show that love? Well, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was willing to go to hell for you so that you could be saved from hell and live eternally with him. Amen? Because what Jesus went through, if there's any description of a hell in the Bible, I would say that the hell is what happened in Gethsemane. I would say that the hell is what happened on the hill of Calvary. I would say that the hell is when they pressed those thorns into his brow and nailed him to the cross, and when God the Father had to forsake him because your sin and my sin was laid upon him. That's the hell that really Jesus had to go through in order for you to never be in hell. Amen? Amen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever, I mean, this invitation is broad. It reaches every single person. Whoever believes in him, put your trust in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, take notice of this. Either you perish or you receive what? Everlasting life. So, so according to John three sixteen, how many options are there? two options. Okay, so what are the options? Either you believe in the Son, you accept the offer that He has wrought in your behalf, and you have everlasting life, right? You with me so far? Or you reject the Son, you reject His offer, and what's the alternative? Perish. Perish. The alternative is not eternal damnation and eternal hell fire according to john three sixteen, the alternative is not an eternal uh, fire an eternal hell it is that we perish we are no more because you have separated yourself from the very source of life and there is no life outside of the son of man the son of god life is only in him uh, romans chapter 6 verse 23 says for the wages of sin is what Oh, oh, but for many, the wages of sin is an eternally burning hell. For many, the wages of sin is that they are going to be tormented throughout the ceaseless ages of time. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, the options are eternal life or death eternal everlasting life or Perishing the options are very simple in scripture. There's not a multiple choice answer of four five six seven options There are only two options eternal life or perishing Now C.S. Lewis um, he uh, he was really on to something when he said the following he said the following There are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. And all that are in hell choose it. Without that self choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. He's really onto something here. He's saying, you know, if, if we want to do the will of God, if we seek God, then, then, then we will find Him. Everyone who knocks, You know it will be opened seek and you will find right and he will lead you to to the greatest treasure that you could ever possess the gospel and and the consequences of you obtaining that treasure is an eternal relationship with a friend that lasts forever you will be there and so your will will be done your will to be with christ will be fulfilled you will be with him but then there's another group where god says okay your will be done because what is the will of those people the will of those people is saying no i don't want to be with you god The will of those people is a rejection of his invitation and so god in his mercy and in his love and 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 giving the very gift of free choice he respects the decision of those that he has created that do not want to spend eternity with him it's that simple my friends the gospel is an invitation to be with jesus but god god is, is 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 respecting the decision of those That reject this very invitation there was a book written a number of years ago uh, by a roman catholic priest his name is charles chinicky and uh, the title of the book is 50 years in the church of rome it's a very interesting read this um this this priest he um he went through a uh, I, i think you could best describe it as a long dark night of anguish and anxiety and fear and as he just grows up and he becomes a catholic priest because he feels such a longing to serve god he finds himself in a very difficult place because he loves he, he really wants to do God's will and he loves God but but the picture that he has of God is just absolutely not the biblical picture the picture that he has of God is is, is a God that is not approachable a God that 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 torments people in hell forever and ever and he is afraid that he's going to end up there no matter how much he does no matter how much he dedicates his life to god no matter how much he inflicts suffering upon himself he never feels good enough to approach god and on top of that according to the roman catholic church there is different ways that you can come to god and one of the ways is through the saint mary right and so he approaches Mary and he's praying to Mary. And basically Mary is becoming the kind of interceding uh, uh, force there between him and, and, and God. Because Mary is kind of the motherly figure. And so he, he just wants to get mercy from Mary that the wrath of the Father may not fall upon him. And so he's crying out to these all the saints that he can possibly imagine. This saint and that saint and that saint to somehow find some um, favor with God. But he never feels that he gets that favor until someone leads him to read the Gospels. He had read the, the tradition of the church fathers. He had re- read all about the saints and how you should pray to saints. And, 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 but, but this was always kind of the mystical book that was kind of inapproachable. But then, but then he picks up the Bible for himself. And he starts reading the scriptures. and he starts being, And he gets introduced to a very different picture of God. And the picture that he gets from god through the scripture is a god that is a god of love and that is approachable by everyone and there is no person or saint that stands in between and by my friend by by the way friends this is again a reason why we need to be very strong on the doctrine of, of 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 what happens when a person dies because the whole idea of an immortal soul is not just an open door to spiritism it's also an open door to all this nonsense about saints because mary is not in heaven Mary is waiting, sleeping in the grave, waiting for the resurrection, right? And so you, don't, you can't pray to Mary. And you can't pray to St. Augustus and St. this and that and St. that. They are sleeping in the grave. You, you can approach your Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, amen? He is your interceder. And so he, he, he realizes this for the first time and, and there's this picture of God's love that just, that just dawns on his mind as he's reading the scriptures and reading the gospels and he falls in love with Christ for the first time and he is freed from his anxiety and fear. And I'm thinking the very story of, of, of this priest that went through this for, for 50 years serving the church of Rome, but then finally discovering the gospel. There are so many people in this world today that are anxious, and they, their picture of God has been distorted by, 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 by Rome and by, by, by false doctrines and even compromised Protestantism. And it's time for them to approach the scriptures afresh and to get a new picture of God. Amen. To get a new picture of the love of God because the love of God my friends in Scripture is not leading us to fear but it's leading us to love it's leading us into a relationship with him that is built upon trust just like a child trusts their parents so we can trust our Heavenly Father you know it's interesting when you look at the history of the church in many ways the dark ages they 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 led to a um, a revolutionary movement within Europe And I believe that this revolutionary movement that you can read about in Europe is almost like um, uh, on a big scale what has happened to many people on a smaller scale in their personal lives even today. Because as the Church of Rome was ruling for centuries, and they were portraying a picture of a God that torments people forever, purgatory, you know, and all the whole deal of, 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 of the priest being the interceder instead of Christ, and all of this nonsense that they were proclaiming for centuries led to what we now call the French Revolution. And you know what the French Revolution was all about? It was all about getting rid of everything that has to do with religion, because we can't on earth believe such a god. And so there's first there's a distortion of the character of God, and then the result of the distortion of the character of God is I don't want God at all. Are you with me? So what happened in the French Revolution is happening on a, on, a, on a miniature scale in the lives of many, many people today. Many people, I meet atheists all the time in Europe, and, they, and, and, and I've spoken with many of them. And, and actually, when I probe a little bit into it, I find out their, their atheism, their rejection of God, is actually a rejection of a false picture of God. They're rejecting a God that I don't even believe in. You know there's this story actually of a pastor that was on a plane and he sits down and he opens up a book and uh, he was reading, re- reading some religious book maybe his Bible I don't remember and he's reading it and the person sitting next to him in the plane is saying like oh are you a Christian and he says yeah I'm a Christian and the young man says well I'm an atheist and, and, and this pastor, in a moment of brilliance, he turns to the young man and he says, can you explain the God that you don't believe in? And so he says, yes, I can explain the God that I don't believe in. It's a God that predetermines who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. It's a God that, that tortures people in, in hellfire forever and ever. And he goes on to describe a, a God that, 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 that doesn't exist, that's nowhere found in the Bible. And when he's finished with his explanation, the pastor turns to him and says, well, in that case, I'm an atheist too. Because I don't believe that that type of God exists anywhere in the universe But let me tell about you Let me tell you about the God that I do believe in and he started explaining the God of love that is revealed in the scriptures And this was happening in the French Revolution They turned away from a God that actually didn't exist Take notice what it says here in the book the great controversy It says it was popery that had begun the work listen to this which atheism was completing This is the master plan of the enemy The master plan of the enemy, this is thought through. This is the war of thrones, my friends. This is the war of thrones. The enemy has it all figured out. Okay, misrepresent Christianity for centuries and then people will get so fed up of God that they'll throw the whole thing out and then we've got atheism and we'll continue with that plan. But God wants to stop this plan. And how is he gonna do it? By portraying his true character throughout scriptures. By taking a fresh look at what God is actually like according to the scriptures listen what else happened here during the french revolution it says after france had renounced the worship of the living god the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity it was only a little time till she descended to degrading idolatry by the worship of the goddess of reason in the person of a profligate woman When the goddess was brought into the convention, the orator took her by the hand and turning to the assembly said, mortals, cease to tremble before the powerless thunders of a god whom your fears have created. Henceforth acknowledge no divinity but reason. Isn't that interesting? And, And there's actually some truth to what he's saying. Because when he said that the god that your fears have created, that's exactly what had happened. But now they're throwing out everything. They're turning to the god of reason because of a misunderstanding of the character of God. Sadly, today, many are turning to the God of reason instead of looking afresh at the biblical picture of the God that truly exists. Rabbi Zacharias and a Christian apologist said it so beautifully. He said the following, I think the reason we sometimes have the false sense that God is so far away, listen to this, is because that is where we have put him. We have kept him at a distance. And then we, when we are in need and call on him in prayer, we wonder where he is and then he closes with this brilliant line he is exactly where we left him so so you know where is your god tonight you know where is your god tonight your god is exactly where you left him but you know what your god can be closer than ever tonight if you open the scriptures afresh and you study the character of god and you find out what god has done for you through his son jesus christ god can be closer than ever and maybe some of you tonight, you feel in a sense that God is far away. But, but this can be a turning point. You can say, God, I want to accept you as my friend. I want to accept you as my savior. I want that close relationship with you that your scriptures portray. And I want to close with this. In Revelation chapter 14, we have what we call the three angels' messages. And I've talked about this earlier. The three angels' messages are those three messages that will go into all the world before Jesus comes. And the first angel's message there in Revelation 14, verse six and seven, is really this introduction of the gospel. And when the gospel is introduced, it is an introduction of the character of God, the character of God that we need to look at and we need to behold in order to be saved. And the messages is, is, it reads such, "'Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, "'having the everlasting gospel to preach to those "'who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, "'tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear god and when it says fear here it doesn't mean to be afraid the original word here is is to honor to reverence reverence god honor god give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water that's the final message going into the world a a revelation of the character of god to all tribes tongues nations and people a revelation that god is the creator a revelation of the gospel of jesus christ but it's also followed by a second angel's message. And the second angel says the following in Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, another message follows, saying, Babylon is fallen. Is fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication this is symbolic language that is implied here but basically what it's saying is uh, there's a warning oh yes there's a gospel that's gonna go to all the world and the character of God is gonna be lifted up and many are gonna see what God is actually like but the second angels message is there's a warning I want you to turn away from Babylon Babylon is a false system of worship Babylon is confusion actually when you go all the way back into Genesis and the first instance of Babylon is that tower remember they're gonna build this tower all the way up to heaven they're gonna do their own will and later you you trace throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation the concept of Babylon is God's enemy the enemy of God's people and in the end of time it says Babylon not literally some city somewhere in the Middle East this is talking about a system A system that is confusing the nature of God a system that is confusing the character of God but the Bible says in this second angels message that also has to go into all the world is Babylon is fallen this false system of worship it's a fallen system and even though it's making the nation's drunk with the wine of her fornication and this is this is the teaching the teaching of God it's like or the teaching of this system its like wine it it benumbs the senses it confuses the thoughts but it's a fallen system and that's why, together with preaching the gospel, we need to expose error. Amen? To expose the error of systems that are benumbing and confusing the multitudes. And my friends, there is Babylon is active today. And sadly enough, Babylon is active in Christianity to give a false picture of the character of God. And therefore, we preach with boldness, Babylon is fallen. Amen? Babylon has fallen come out come out of Babylon come out of that confusion about an eternal torment come out of that confusion about the immortality of the soul come out of that confusion about Sunday sacredness come out of that confusion and join a movement that is rooted and grounded in Scripture can you say amen? amen amen and so I pray that as we see Babylon for what it is tonight That we can say i don't want to be part of that confusion i don't want to be part of of paganism that shakes hands with christianity i don't want to be part in paganistic rites that have been baptized within christianity i want to be part of a movement that stands on the bible and the bible alone amen okay we'll close with this good news about hell what is what have we learned tonight what is the good news about hell no one is burning right now can you say amen amen Amen. no one will burn eternally can you say amen okay hell is fair it's god is just can you say amen you don't have to be there now that can be a very loud amen amen (laughs) all right and finally jesus would rather go to hell for you than live in heaven without you Amen? amen all right well we're through and i just pray that this has been an inspiration for you as you continue to examine the content of scripture and you continue to look at the cross and be transformed by it shall we pray together heavenly father thank you so much for being with us tonight Thank you for speaking both to our hearts and to our minds with your word. And I pray that promise over us all, Lord, that the word will not return unto you void, but accomplish in that which you are pleased. May you do what you want to do in our lives, Lord. Help us to come closer and closer to you, to embrace that picture that scripture presents of a loving God, and help us, Lord, to prepare for your coming. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse